You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Every once in a while, you get a inflection point in a different space. And in direct primary care, that inflection point was when Alan Lickerman switched from traditional care and medicine and teaching to direct primary care. And he's now considered a thought leader in the direct primary care movement by most. Um, Alan Lickerman is the founder and CEO of ImagineMD, a direct primary care practice. And he spent his first 20 years of his career as a leader at one of the top academic medical schools, which is known as the Pritzker School in Chicago, where he uh, ran the primary care for seven years and he taught generations of today's leaders in medicine. And he enjoyed a reputation as a doctor's doctor. So if you've seen Dr. House, this is the guy right here without all the weird predilections. He cares for many physicians, but he also helps them solve their most complicated cases. He's a nationally recognized speaker on the topic of resilience and his book, The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing the Indestructible Self can be found where most books are found. And it gives you basic steps to increase resilience and it has uh, formed the basis of the Landmark Resilience Project, which you can Google and learn a lot more about, and we'll talk a little bit more about today. So, Dr. Lickerman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes. I have to get to my first question, which has been burning, which is, why switch to direct primary care with this wonderful traditional model where you get to beg for your insurance reimbursements? What's going on there? <laughs> Yeah, you wonder why don't I uh, stick in that in that field and uh, be a glutton for punishment? You know what happened to me was I'd been at the University of Chicago for 20 years, and in the last 10 years of my time there, had done a lot of administrative work. And while I enjoyed some of it, the truth was most of us in medicine at University of Chicago who did did administrative work were doing it because. Uh, clinical work had become so overwhelming. And at the end of 20 years, I finally just decided I wanted to be a clinician. I just wanted to see patients. But the notion of doing that full-time in the UFC system, where I'm given 20 minutes per patient, uh, 10 of which are used up by a nurse checking vitals uh, with patients who really are sort of the sickest of the sick because they were at a tertiary care center like the University of Chicago, it just didn't seem to me to be tenable. I, I really was already struggling with balance in my life and, and, and more importantly, trying to deliver uh, really excellent care to my patients. And with the time allotted, it just seemed to me I needed to do something dramatic. And so I did something I never thought I would do, which was leave the University of Chicago because I really loved the place. Uh, but in order for me to become a full-time clinician and practice medicine the way I thought it should be practiced and could be practiced, I needed a new model. When you switched to direct primary care, was there even a second place? In other words, was there even another option other than going into your own practice, getting rid of the 16 middlemen that are feeding off the system, uh, was there even a backup to this? No, no, actually, uh, I, there was no other idea that I had. And, um, you know, the truth is I thought about this 10 years earlier 
probably around 2005 or so. But at that time, I really didn't think uh, the world was quite ready for it because there's there was still certainly at that time this notion that direct primary care, which outgrew, came out of the concierge medicine movement, was really just for rich people, and there was an uh, uh, you know an elitism uh, that surrounded it. I thought, and I I didn't want to just be a doctor to rich people, and and yet in the intervening 10 years. Uh, the fee-for-service medicine had become so bad that I think people were much more open to this. And so I was all in from the beginning. I thought this model makes a lot of sense. It's going to enable me to practice medicine the way I want to. And I also like the idea of being my own boss for once. And so I really didn't have a plan B. This was it. You know, Josh Umber and um, Clint Flanagan disavowed me of the same prejudices that I had, which was that VIP is just cut in line and pay a little extra and it's for the top 10%. But the reality is direct primary care in Kansas, where he's practicing in Topeka, it's a $50 proposition and maybe less, maybe $10 or $25 for his for the children. There's some DPCs that will charge $50 for as many children as you have. And if you're some families, that's quite a bargain. But what I, what I understand about direct primary care now is so different because clearly, if you have a cohort of six or 800, you could take care of America with the number of PCPs that are suffering right now? You know, I, I haven't done that math. I don't know if that's true. I think uh, if even if it's not true, my answer to people who criticize the movement by saying, you're cutting out so many patients out of each doctor's panel, we're going to exacerbate the shortage in primary care. My answer to that is, look at how many medical students and residents are going to primary care now. It's 2% of all graduates. And it's because they look at what primary care is like in the fee-for-service world and they say, why would I ever want to do that? And so if we don't do something to make primary care an attractive specialty again, to, to reestablish it as the backbone of our healthcare system, we're going to have a shortage no matter what. So uh, I really think that, that that's where the, the solution begins, not just what's been done, which is pile more and more patients into the panels of primary care doctors until they're literally breaking and 50% of them want to quit, as one study in JAM in 2013 uh, found. Uh, we're going to have a mess on our hands no matter what we do. You know, so right now, roughly a third of all the PCPs are over 56 years old. That doesn't bode well when you have 10,000 Medicare enrollees enrolling every day for the next eight years. That's not a very good supply and demand curve for PCPs. But the math is very simple. If you take 500,000 PCPs and you multiply that, that times 600 patients, you've basically got America covered. And so that was that's a very short version of a long story. But um, here's, here's the thing that really just amazes me is that you have, in my grandfather's generation, about 70% choosing primary care because there weren't as many specialists. In my father's generation, it was roughly 30% uh, is the best numbers I can find were choosing primary care. So the numbers were still sustainable to replace those uh, retiring. And then about four or five years ago, the most recent study I found showed about 15%. But when you really dig down into it, it's more like 6%. So your number 2% really sounds more realistic because... My son and my daughter-in-law graduated from top five schools, and no more than 2% were selecting primary care out of these fine schools. And I can't imagine uh, that it's any higher than that at the other schools. So um, it's just a burnout machine. The, do you think that a solution might be to have the residents be forced into some type of a rotation into a DPC clinic or a successful primary care clinic that has lots of ancillaries and good take-home revenue for the doc? You know, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that. I will tell you that uh, there's a lot of conferences that are now being put on uh, about direct primary care that physicians who've been out in the community for years are attending. And recently, I've been aware that residents are beginning to attend those as well and become interested in it. Um, 
I don't know if attending a DPC clinic would necessarily uh, be, be the answer. Uh, it would certainly give these residents a taste of what primary care could be like. So maybe that's a really clever idea. Um, but keep in mind, you know, what DPC is, it's not a new type of primary care. It's a new type of payment for primary care. And it enables primary care doctors to do what they actually are trained to do rather than sort of have, you know, narrowed their scope down to be almost nothing of of what, what they're capable of doing. So I think what's happening is that as the word is getting out and direct primary care is becoming more well-known, that residents and even medical students are seeking out uh, you know, what it's like on their own without, without much prompting. But it's an intriguing idea. I don't know that there's enough direct primary care offices yet that could handle the influx of people who might be interested in it. Well, we have roughly 1,200 practices, and then people like Clint Flanagan are expanding like crazy. He just signed the state of Colorado, and he's got the various school districts throughout Colorado. So he has what he calls the ranch, which is 60 different locations. And so he's able to appeal with sort of a plain vanilla offering to corporations and, and public entities that mom and pops in Chicago may not be able to because you have 12 or 15 or 20 different offerings. But um, he's, he's really got a very clever strategy, and I'm uh, pretty excited about what he's doing to expand it rapidly. And then the word I get from Kirkham Bear is that they've got something like 105 practices in some form of, or some stage of taking DPC on just out of just pure frustration. So what, tell me what you've seen. I mean, you have been on the front lines. What does a burned out doctor tend to do in terms of medical errors and in terms of just, you know, taking good notes, um, you know, paying attention to their family at night when they're really charting what's going on in that person's life? It's a mess. I mean, what burnout is probably going to turn out to be is just another version of depression. And so, you know, the first thing you see and what I began to observe in many of my colleagues at the University of Chicago uh, is this flattening out of personality, this sort of emotional disengagement from patients. They care to a certain extent, but beyond that, um, their caring and their efforts just stop. And it's sort of like, imagine literally being on an assembly line that is moving past you faster than you can assemble the widgets you are tasked with assembling. You actually develop, you know, when you realize there's nothing you can do to complete your job and do a, a job well, you sort of develop what's called learned helplessness, which is sort of the key or the, the cornerstone of depression where you kind of stop trying. And, and then, uh, you know, you, 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 try, you struggle to keep up, work comes home with you, you do this ridiculous amount of charting now in the electronic medical record, which is this double-edged sword, uh, and you stop keeping up professionally and then you become depressed, uh, you know, clinically and socially, you become isolated. Um, I think there's a there's clear reason why uh, a study I just saw about physicians have among the highest rates of suicide of any profession now. And it's because they're just unable to do their jobs well. Statistically, they're just a hair above American veterans. So just if you look at the, the, the data, it's just incredibly scary. I remember when I was a kid, dentists were the ones that were yes, severely depressed right. and they had to look at mouths right. all day long and they were committing suicide. And boy, they've gotten off the hook now when uh, primary care is put up in, at the firing line. So, so here's, here's my question. I don't understand resilience as a solution because I know that's something that's mainstream, um, you know, thinking, and it's also part of your thinking, and I really deeply respect the way you've approached it. But, but my feeling about resilience is that you really, you can go into a resilient training, resilient therapy, whatever, um, you know, morning rituals you have. At the end of the day, you still have this nightmare of a meat grinder that you have to step into at 8 a.m. So tell me more about resilience and why that may be a solution. 
Well, I think you're exactly right. And I do not think resilience training and mental health support is the answer for what's going on with primary care physicians right now. The answer is the system is untenable. And so when all these physicians, when 50% of physicians or more actually want to quit, you can't say the problem is with the physicians. That's too many of them. It's the problems with the system they're embedded in. So I, I, I want to be very clear. I do not believe the solution is these doctors just need to get tougher. That's not the answer. However, uh, my interest in resilience really predates my interest in direct primary care. And it's more about um, when I was at the University of Chicago, the last thing I did there was run the student health program. And uh, even back then, this is in 2010, we were getting feedback from the university that was, was getting feedback from potential employers of our students saying, you know, boy, they're just a, a fragility that we have not been seeing in the past that we are seeing now where these students just uh, really kind of fall apart much too easily, very easily, and their expectations are unrealistic about what working in the real world is like. And they were sort of saying to us, what's going on? And I had become interested even before I had entered the role as director of student health there in this notion of can resilience be learned? Uh, and this I was drawing from, uh, you know, the philosophy of Buddhism that that uh, over, over centuries uh, and even millennia, Buddhist philosophers uh, had really been arguing that to be happy really first and foremost requires strength, inner strength. And they had many prescriptions for this. And I became interested to know, had modern day science investigated a lot of these 1,500-year-old or 2,500-year-old Buddhist ideas and given them scientific validity? And it turns out that they really had. And so I wrote a book about that, as you mentioned, called The Undefeated Mind, that really I wanted to be as science-based as possible, but also provide practical ways individual people facing the challenges of their daily lives could maximize their inner resources and their strength. And it turns out there are some very specific, very interesting, and very effective ways to do that that are in some cases counterintuitive. In some cases, uh, once you hear about them, they make total sense, but you wouldn't necessarily think about them on your own uh, until they're pointed out to you. And so uh, my work in resilience really is more uh, an, uh, my interest in sort of an individual level, working with people who struggle with depression, anxiety, and stress um, to help them cope with it better. And, and I'll just add one more thing. It wasn't until I began practicing in, in a direct primary care setting and I suddenly had all this extra time to spend with patients that gave me the ability to ask them, hey, you know, are you anxious? Are you depressed? What are your stress levels like? And I began to uncover what I kind of consider to be an epidemic of unaddressed and unrecognized or underrecognized stress and anxiety and depression in the working population. And it just, I think people experience those problems at a level that really often interfere with their ability to function, interfere with the quality of their lives, uh, and and are, are create a significant amount of pain for them, but not so much pain that they necessarily are willing to take what they consider to be the dramatic step of going to see a therapist. But now they have a primary care doctor in me who actually can ask them about those questions, and all this stuff comes spilling out. So in fact, a lot of what I do in my with my patients in my practice on an individual basis is give them... Uh, resilience training, counseling, and sort of how to manage the, the the daily stresses of life that we all face. Well, gosh, I have to ask: Is there an app for that? <laughs> is there something? Is there some shortcut that you've created that allows people to quickly get it, or is it going to require a read or a listen to the book? Um, uh, it, it is, you know, I wrote the book with the intention that people could finish it and come away with it with very practical techniques they can apply in their own lives. But as you also mentioned in, in the introduction at the University of Chicago, one of the things I did before I left was actually create a curriculum 
based on the book and based on the ideas I generated from the research uh, that I did for the book, that we studied, actually. And what we discovered was the, the undergraduates and graduates who went through the course that we created actually uh, reduced their levels, uh, or sorry, I should say increased their levels of resilience by 10%, which on the surface may seem like a little bit, but in terms of uh, a change in resilience, that's a huge change because what that translated into was a reduction in levels of depression by about 45% and reduction levels of anxiety by about 52%, which, which turn out to be almost identical to levels of reduction you see in those two things when you treat them with medication. My God. Well, that's fantastic news. You know, you've proven a point that I have always believed since I've learned about DPC is that you can inherit, you can bring Eastern medicine into direct primary care, either directly by having an Eastern medicine physician on a subscription basis. You can also probably bring Ayurvedic, which is also a cash business today into a prim direct primary care. I can really see this movement taking on a lot of the best practices from the East and the Near East um, into America because we have such large populations here that would be uh, amenable to that. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I actually have some complex thoughts about this. So one thing that I've noticed is um, in recent years, there's been a dramatic rise in the number of pseudoscientific claims that are out in society that people in very large populations are buying into. And my theory about this is that uh, in, in traditional medicine, we have so little time to spend with patients that there's been a shattering of the trust that used to exist between doctor and patient in traditional you know, medical uh, systems. And so patients have gone where they can actually get more time and attention, which is in alternative therapies. Now, my problem with alternative therapies is not that they're alternative. It's that often there's not enough evidence to support, one, their safety, and two, their effectiveness. So I am uh, very uh, intrigued with and interested in, uh, you know, Eastern approaches to medical problems and to psychological problems. But for me, especially having been raised, so to speak, in the tradition of the University of Chicago, I'm, I'm really a medical scientist. I will be open to any wacky thing as long as there's some evidence to support that it's real and that it works. And it turns out there is. As I said, that was the process of my first book, which is that there's some real science backing these, these very ancient ideas. And I think that we should, we should pay attention to those ideas and study them and apply them but as always, we must first do no harm and then secondly, have some idea, some evidence somewhere that what we're recommending really does have uh, proof of efficacy. Well, you know, there's a the wellness movement, which, you know, maybe instead of allopathic, we could call it homeopathic medicine is really blossomed because I, I believe it has to do with affordability that something like uh, 56 to 58 percent of the people cannot get into a thousand dollar deductible, much less the four thousand dollar deductible. So they're taking yoga classes and they're taking, you know, organic foods and they're, they're trying and basically anything under the sun that's listed in the alternative pages, you know, the rags that are in the whole foods and they're dying to get healthy, uh, maybe in a more holistic way. But my theory is that without a blood test, you don't have a primary care visit. You simply got to have some kind of a allopathic uh, start to begin down that path. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I mean, I think the message is right that, that there's been an explosion in the last 20, 25 years of uh, knowledge in the medical literature about what we need to do to promote health and prevent disease. And people are getting the message and they're going to these things in droves, of course, because people figure out a way to market to them. And the idea of doing something now to stay healthy has become popular. And I think that's wonderful and great. The challenge is there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of unsupported practices going on. And so it's very hard, I think, in our society right now to know who to trust, what authority uh, we should listen to. And, and when we're willing uh, to spend the time and, and energy, you know, 
taking on these these uh, behaviors to keep ourselves healthier, are we taking on the right ones, right? I mean, look at all the controversy now in, in just what is a healthy diet? We still don't have a great answer. Uh, so I think um, we're simultaneously faced with an explosion of actual knowledge about what does constitute healthy behavior and confusion about which vendor is going to actually help us to follow the steps that will provide it to us. You know, there's always the diet of the year. There's always, I think keto is super popular right now and uh, intermittent fasting and, you know, circadian medicine looks like it's coming on strong, which is telling you when to eat during the day and when to space it out, when to take your flu shots. There seems to be a lot of different interesting and precision medicine now is being applied, not just to oncology, but really to any kind of genomics testing before even a PCP visit. Do you have any um, feelings or theories that um, of some comers in primary care that look like they're promising? Yeah, I do. And let me just say first, you know, um, there's the reason these things are becoming popular is because there's some real evidence around a lot of this. But the difference is, and what's happening is that, um, you know, science advances very slowly and it has often missteps and it goes down blind alleys and it has to back up. And it just, and in our society now, because we're also incredibly connected through social media and technology, we're impatient and, and we will read and be drawn to reading things that promise us the answers today. And so a lot of this stuff, uh, the marketing dramatically overhypes the science and people are, are leaping in towards doing things before the science has really validated it. And it's not that it's not necessarily going to, we just don't know yet. So for example, you brought up pharmacogenomics, this notion or precision medicine where you would test your DNA and figure out what medications you're likely to respond to, which ones are more likely to give you side effects, things like that. You know, it, it, it's very real and it's 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 very um, evidence based, uh, but practically, in most cases, it's not that useful yet. Uh, there too, are circumstances. Too early. You think it's too early for some well, of these? Because pharmacogenomics right now is well recognized in oncology. Yes. It's well recognized in a couple of the spaces, but not yes. necessarily in genomics or for the, the general pharmacy panel. In primary care, yeah. So there are a couple of instances in which I would like to have that, but they actually just haven't worked out the genes uh, and the drug studies yet. So for example, um, with uh, uh, blood pressure medications, you know, I have many, many choices about what medicines to use in someone has high blood pressure. I don't have a lot of pharmacogenomic data yet to help me with that. Or another example, people have migraines and we have, and they're having them frequently enough, we have to give them a pill to take every day to prevent them. There's so many choices there. I would love to be able to do it other than you know the way I do it now, which is trial and error to find the right medication that they both can tolerate and that works for them. So I think that's going to be useful in very specific circumstances. But I don't know that everyone who comes in to see a primary care doctor needs to have pharmacogenomic testing just yet. Okay. We're not there yet. Because those um, guests that I've had on to talk about it say that there's basically a fast, a middle, and a slow lane for your metabolism. And many of the drugs that are given to folks are basically in the wrong lane. They're not the uh, fast metabolizing drugs. And so they're basically going into the toilet as uh, useless pharmacists. And that's sometimes true, uh, and and yet, um, you know, with a lot of medicines, uh, in my experience, that that that's not, it doesn't take you that much, it doesn't take that much longer to get to the right medicines without that information. And so, uh, I think that there's great promise there, and eventually, yes, we might be able to get to the right answer, the right medication choice more quickly. Um, but uh, in many instances, uh, so for example, like with uh, choices for, an for antibiotics, you have an infection. Pharmacogenomic data is not yet that useful because uh, it's more about what the bugs are susceptible to. For other things, yeah, no, they're really, you know, uh, it, it could be very helpful. I, I see it coming, but from a pragmatic perspective right now, uh, I think that's something that's being a little bit overhyped. 
So Alex, now that you're in direct primary care, do you have more time for your hypertensives and your pre-diabetics to talk about weight management and uh, proper exercise and hydration and all the important things you just never had a chance to get to before? Absolutely. I have more time to talk about patients, talk with patients about everything. And so, you know, um, what this enabled me to do is bring back into the discussion uh, things that I have always wanted to be there, but that haven't been able to be there. So yes, certainly for my obese patients, they all get a discussion about how to lose weight and not just a discussion because it's not, it's clearly not enough just to educate people about how they should behave. You actually have to help them behave that way. You have to help them leverage psychological principles so that they can actually figure out how to actually change behavior long-term in a way that is not difficult, right? We all think, for example, the way to lose weight is to exert your willpower enough. And that actually turns out not to be the right answer. Willpower ends up being a very weak mental force that in the long run really will not sustain any change in behavior that's meaningful. You have to do other things. And so you need people who understand those principles and have the time to coach you through that in the long term so that your behavior ultimately matches up with what you've been educated to do. But clearly education alone is not enough to get people to change your behavior. So I have lots of theories. I want to try a couple on you um, because I really respect the way that you approach medicine from a scientific perspective. I think direct primary care has not taken off because number one, there's probably not enough rotations going through direct primary care or the residents would clearly see the benefit and the peace of mind that you have and the relaxed day that you have. I call it a relaxed day. I don't know, but I'm assuming, you know, seeing six to eight to 10 patients a day is a little bit more relaxed than 25. Um, and, And more so, I think that there's a there's no evidence right now, and it would be a very easy study to do that talks about burnout in direct primary care. I'm going to assume that it's almost zero. I'm going to assume that the suicide rate is almost zero over the last 10 years. And I'm going to assume that that stands up pretty well against um, the the larger norm out there. You mean in direct primary care, you're saying? I think in direct primary care, if somebody were to do a study that looked at burnout in direct primary care, they would find uh, yeah. non-existent. Yeah. Uh, certainly anecdotally, when you go to these conferences and talk to doctors who have made the transition, they, they've been reborn in their practice and it's a totally different experience. And, and certainly that's my own experience. Everyone I've talked to has said, yeah, they've rediscovered their love of medicine again. Uh, you know, it, it varies obviously, uh, depending on exactly how they've structured their practice, but that, that would be an easy study to do. And I would not be surprised if the findings turned out to be exactly as you predicted. Um, are you a little jealous of these young docs that come straight out of the residency or straight out of medical school and go right into DPC and don't mess around with the hospitalist movement and screwing around with working in a large group? No, I'm not jealous of those guys. I'm glad to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be in the stage of my career I'm in, and and I actually able to you know. Uh, uh, apply my experience in a, in a setting. Let me, let me put it this way. I feel not only am I far more balanced, happy, and less stressed than I have ever been, but most importantly, I feel that I am practicing the best medicine of my career because I have the time to do it. it just, it's that stupid. It's that simple. Just having the time to think, to ask the right questions, to do a full exam, to read in the medical literature has made such a difference in my practice. And that's what DPC has given me back, time. I, I wish we could broadcast that over the radio waves every day of the year. Um, so tell me, what is the holdup for direct primary care to take off? I mean, with twelve to 1,500 docs out of half a million, that's just a dot on the map. What's taking so long? Yeah. Uh, what's taking so long is that it, it is extraordinarily capital intensive to begin your own practice. Doctors are typically uh, and stereotypically not uh, astute business people. 
and it really takes funds and courage to do this. You know, to the, the statistics that I'm aware of is that in general, when you take a fee-for-service practice and you convert it to direct primary care, about 10% of your patient panel will stick with you. And so depending on what your expenses are, what you're going to charge, that may not be enough to sustain you. Or they may feel, you know, the doctors may feel, well, what if it's less than that and I can't do it? And so it's sort of uh, the, 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 the phrase, the Stockholm syndrome has been bandied about a lot. And I think that we're all captive to a terrible system that we're afraid to let go of because it's what we, you know, we were afraid of what, you know, how it could be worse. Well, as a business guy, I have to walk through the numbers with you because if you have 2,500 in a typical panel and 250 of those folks follow you, 250 times 100 bucks a month, if my math is right, is $25,000. And you multiply that out times 12 months, and that to me adds up to $300,000. You can afford an MA and a rent an office from a group of psychologists for $300,000. There's no need to set up a uh, flagship, you know, beautiful office. You can literally rent a room and see patients in your exam room and um, start simple. And there's not a giant investment in doing that. You can spend a couple hundred thousand also alternatively, rent a nice finish out, have a nice finish out, build a new storefront in a perfect location. Um, and, and there's everything in between. And I've talked to deep, a DPC in Austin and she is a nurse and she has an average startup of about 25,000 per location. So you can do it on a, on a, on a shoestring. You don't have to take out a, another school loan equivalent to uh, get your practice up and running. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, and I think for folks who are sort of already um, up and running themselves and already, uh, you know, have an office and that's built out and that's a sort of a sunk cost, it is definitely easier. And so, uh, for those, it may just be fear or they haven't heard of it or they're worried about what's going to happen to the patients who are going to leave or I don't know. But, uh, you know, the real question, though, is, I mean, I don't think DPC scales uh, based on just individual doctors taking individual patients off the street who, who want a better system of healthcare. I think what needs to happen and what we're trying to do is actually entice self-funded employers to actually sign up their employees with practices like ours. So we get large chunks of patients at once who can actually convert large practices quickly. Uh, because, you know, our idea, for example, is we're looking to open up offices around the country where there is demand. And of course, that's a large capital expense. And we need large chunks of patients promised to us by these self-funded employers to be able to do that. And I think the statistics are 50% of all Americans get their health insurance through their uh, employer. So it's a huge, huge population of patients that could be served by direct primary care. And the business case is there. I mean, we have, uh, um, you know, case study after case study that shows even when in a self-funded employer is going to uh, double or triple or even quadruple their investment in primary care. Primary care is the smallest percentage of spending in their healthcare expense. And when they do that, they make that upfront investment. The downstream spending that's overutilized, all the, all the unnecessary ER visits and specialty referrals and even inpatient hospitalizations dramatically drops. So the business case is there, but you know, getting those folks to, um, to make that change is very difficult. Less, uh, less measurable is presenteeism. You show up to work and you've got the flu or flu-like allergy symptoms and you don't really, uh, you're not checked in at work or you're spreading something around because you're too afraid to miss work or you can't afford a primary care visit. And then out of that 50%, there's a very large percentage of those folks who no longer can afford the premium of three to four or $500 a month. And they also recognize that a $1,500 or $4,000 deductible for family is not something they can even begin to think about. So they're, I call it the tree house. They're, the ladder's lifted. They can't even play in the game anymore. Those are perfect folks to start a, a direct primary care practice from because now you're talking 100 a month and maybe a catastrophic plan on top for another couple hundred a month. 
Exactly right. I mean, they're they're basically most of America is functionally uninsured, right? They have such high deductibles that they're basically paying out of pocket, and and they're uh, as David Chase will say, a stub toe away from bankruptcy. They have less in savings than than is their deductible. So it, it really, I mean, we are, uh, it's a house of cards and, uh, you know, why is in America the number one reason for bankruptcy medical bills? I mean, it's just, it's, um, it's really a disaster that our systems become. And, and yet, and yet I am optimistic because there are models like direct primary care that fix a lot of this. There's other things that other really innovative benefit consultants are doing to sort of try to get at the other dysfunction, uh, in our healthcare system. So I, I think, um, I'm really hoping that that employers who are self-funded begin to turn towards this model because they're the ones who will lead this. They're the ones who will turn this into what is still a bit of a fringe movement into something that ultimately will be mainstream and I think will be in a much better place in our country if that happens. Well, I am a DPC client and patient, and I call myself a client first because they consider me a customer, not a patient when I walk in the door. They treat me like a customer, not a patient when I walk in the door. There's no forms fill out, no history to refill out. There's no, it's all been done ahead of time. And I just, I got to tell you, the experience is night and day. What is the um, most important um, message that you would want to give employers out there if you could fly a banner over America? Uh, Direct primary care will uh, give better care to your employees and it will save you money. There is no reason on earth not to do it. You should be doing it now. It's ridiculous, uh, ridiculously easy as that. And how can folks find you, Dr. Lickerman, if they want to uh, locate your practice and locate you? Yeah, so uh, we have a website. It's uh, www.imaginemd.net. It's not .com, it's .net. And uh, we've, we created that site really to give people a journey through the story of direct primary care so that when, by the time you've, you're done crawling on it, you'll really understand what this practice is about and what benefit you can get from it. Well, I agree. There's a lot of inertia and a lot of fear. Most of the CEOs, when I talk to uh, here in Houston about my experience, don't believe it. It sounds too good to be true. And I'm telling folks right now for the world to hear, it is not too good to to be true. It's happening and it's real and it's going to be expanding uh, to a location near you. And I think you guys are in 49 states now. You might be lacking uh, South Dakota, but I think you're in every other state in America. So Shouldn't be well, hard to find a practice. I mean, yeah. DP, DPC is, yeah. Our, our, we're we're, we're uh, expanding out of Chicago, but DPC, I think, is just about in every state, yes. Well, I hope when we talk again in a few years, we can make that statement that you're in multiple states and you're all over the country. That would be great. From, from your, your mouth to the universe's ears. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Lickerman. We'll look forward to following up with you in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.